the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Paul Pastor. He is an author and he wrote an article in Christianity Today about the Bible Project. It's an online series of online explainer videos. And boy, are they making an impact drawing people back to studying the scriptures. We're also going to talk with Steve Cleary in the five o'clock hour. He's the co-producer of the CGI animated movie, which is John Bunyan's epic masterpiece, Pilgrim's Progress. It's only in theaters two days. That's Thursday the 18th and Friday, or excuse me, Saturday the 20th. So you'll want to listen up for more details. Uh, By the way, you can also go to Pilgrim's Movie, and that's Pilgrim's plural, uh, Pilgrim's Movie, dot movie, I should say, uh, for theaters, movie times, and so on. Again, only this Thursday and this Saturday, uh, an opportunity to see that CGI Uh, animated movie of the classic. Well, taking a look at some of the day's headlines, uh, Sparks certainly flew almost immediately as Fox News Town Hall hosted Bernie Sanders, the 2020 presidential candidate. He refused to explain why he would not voluntarily pay the massive new 52 percent wealth tax that he advocated imposing on the nation's richest individuals, even though his tax records show that he is, in fact, a millionaire. Just minutes before the town hall started, Sanders released 10 years of his tax returns. He later admitted outright that uh, you're going to pay more in taxes if you, he becomes president. Well, according to the returns, Sanders and his wife paid a 26 percent uh, effective tax rate on $561,293 in income and made more than a million dollars in both 2016 and 2017. Sanders donated 10000 to charity in 2016, 36000 in 2017, the record showed, followed by nearly 19000 in 2018. But pressed by um, anchors Brett Baer and Martha McCallum as uh, to why he was holding on to his wealth, Sanders laughed and asked the anchors, to pressure Trump on his taxes and challenge the president to make his tax records public. Didn't exactly answer the question, but did make a point. And the buzz in Washington, D.C. is at a fever pitch. His special counsel Robert Mueller's much-anticipated Russia report is set to be released to the public and Congress Thursday morning. That's according to the Justice Department. Uh, spokesperson Carrie Kupik told uh, uh, reporters on Monday that Uh, The report would be made available with redactions Thursday morning to lawmakers and to the public. The news comes despite mounting calls from Democrats to first release the uh, report to Congress without redactions. And Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez raised eyebrows during an interview on Sunday when she said the possibility of cutting military or economic aid to Israel is on the table after the election of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, AOC was on Yahoo News Skullduggery, that's a podcast, when she said not in Yahoo's uh, election comes during a disturbing trend of authoritarianism across the world and call the leader a Trump-like figure. And a Marine who ran the Boston Marathon on, uh, in honor of three men he served alongside crawled across the finish line on Monday as his body almost gave up, literally crawling on his hands and knees. But 
His mind didn't. Micah Herndon, 31 years old, uh, ran the race in three hours and 38 minutes, according to race results. But to hit that mark, he had to physically drag his body along the pavement to finish the race. Uh, From Ohio, he served several deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Record Courier reported. During a tour in Afghanistan in 2010, three people he was uh, close to and was with at the time were killed when they were targeted by an IED. And he uttered their names uh, throughout the race and certainly as he crossed the finish line. Former Massachusetts uh, Governor Bill Weld announced on Monday that he will mount a Republican primary challenge against incumbent Donald Trump. Wells' first foray into national politics came in 2016 when he served as Libertarian presidential nominee Gary Johnson's running mate. Johnson and Weld ended up capturing just 3.6 percent of the popular vote after a devastating gaffe in which Johnson admitted he was not aware of the existence of the Syrian city of Aleppo, where intense sectarian fighting was then taking place. And the Washington Post reports Senator Sanders, uh, who made an income inequality a hallmark of his presidential campaign, had earned at least uh, that much, uh, putting them in the nation's highest income bracket. The patriotic millionaires, a group of about 200 wealthy individuals, say they should be taxed more and as soon as possible. Neither Sanders nor patriotic millionaires are prohibited from writing bigger checks to the IRS. He was challenged on that fact during the debate, or rather the town hall. And of the 150,272,157 tax returns filed for the 2016 tax year, 50 million or 33.4% were classified by the Internal Revenue Service as non-taxable returns, meaning the people who filed them paid zero or less in income taxes, according to data published by the Statistics of Income Division of the IRS. At the same time, 80% of all income taxes paid that year were paid by tax return filers, who had adjusted gross incomes of $100,000 or more, 80%. Socialist Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez announced on Sunday that she is no longer using Facebook and is cutting back on all social media for health reasons associated with being too engaged with social media, the Daily Wire reported. I actually think that social media poses a public health risk to everyone, she said. There are amplified impacts for young people, particularly children under the age of three with screen time. But I think it has a lot to a lot of effects on older people. I think it has effects on everybody. Increased isolation, depression, anxiety, addiction, escapism. Ironically, firebrands like AOC are an important component behind social media's devolving into a toxic morass. She's certainly not alone. There are plenty. Philadelphia's soda tax is um, barely two years old, but many Local lawmakers are saying they've seen enough. Um, Maria Sanchez, a member of Philadelphia's city council, introduced a bill last month that would phase out and potentially eliminate the soda tax altogether. Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia's soda tax was imposed uh, with a 1.5 cent per ounce levy on sweetened drinks, raised $79 million in its first year. While the $79 million sounds great, in fact, the tax lagged projections by about 17%. Apparently, Pennywise consumers with the means to do so don't mind shopping outside the city for soda, and when they do, they take other shopping business with them. That leaves the bulk of the tax to be paid by the city's lower-income population, an unintended consequence. All right, it's uh, 14 minutes after 4 o'clock. In just a few moments, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about Tax Freedom Day. Yeah, today is Tax Freedom Day, much earlier than we've seen before. Uh, We'll also take a look at... uh, a divided Congress and what they've accomplished or failed to accomplish. And if time permits, we'll take a look at Facebook uh, and some of the things they've grappled with early on. 
with regard to your privacy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Coming up on our next segment, we're going to talk with author Paul Pastor. He's going to talk about a, a column he wrote for Christianity Today on the Bible Project. We'll tell you more about it. It's an online expla- series of online explainer videos, and we'll tell you more about that when he joins us. We'll also talk in the 5 o'clock hour with Steve Cleary, co-producer of the CGI animated movie, The Pilgrim's Progress, that's going to be in theaters only two days, uh, this Thursday and this Saturday. So we'll give you all the important details, or you can go to pilgrims.movie for times and theaters. Well, today is Tax Freedom Day, the day each year that we recognize the number of days needed to work off federal taxes. This year, the number of work days required to pay off federal taxes came at 105, or about 29% of Americans' uh, Income That's actually five days less than last year, thanks in large part to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, though it's still longer than all but about a dozen years in American history. Uh, That's an awful lot of uh, time work to pay taxes, and yet it still won't uh, cover the federal government's actual spending. Well, as Rachel Gresler notes, as high as $5.42 trillion or $34,600 per worker, Uh, is uh, it's not enough to actually pay for what the government spends. To also cover the federal government's estimated $897 billion deficit for fiscal year 2019, Americans would actually have to work until May the 8th. That's 22 days longer. And she adds if workers actually had to pay for the full cost of government, the average tax bill would be about $5,700 higher at about $40,300 per worker. Now, the shocking reality is that taxes, by far, are America's largest expense. And they're going to get larger if we move in the direction that some are suggesting we ought. Americans spend more on taxes than they do on food, on clothing, and housing combined. Unless Washington seriously cuts its uh, spending soon, Americans will only see, well, Tax Freedom Day coming later and later every year. But for now, if you exclude the cost of um, the uh, deficit... Today is Tax Freedom Day, the day after our taxes were due. Well, Democrats who control the House blame the Republicans. Republicans blame the uh, Democrats. But uh, Democrats are saying that uh, because the Republicans control the Senate, namely Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, for not considering the bills the House sends over, the divided Congress is getting very little accomplished. Said Senate Democratic Leader Charles Schumer, Leader McConnell has turned the Senate into a legislative graveyard for priorities the American people care about. McConnell grinned at the characterization that House bills were going nowhere in the Senate. Uh, he uh, told the Times, I think that's pretty accurate. Yeah, uh, they've been busy here in the first part of Congress sending us things that have, shall I say, no potential in the Senate. And I understand that there's a new majority. They want to lay out uh, how they feel about things. Well, Democrats flush with a new House majority after nearly a decade in the minority are sending over a rash of bills most political watchers believe have little chance of passing in the Senate, such as universal background checks for gun purchases, net neutrality, climate change, congressional ethics, expanding voter access, raising the minimum wage and more. Still, House Speaker Pelosi says she's optimistic. She says public sentiment will weigh in and the Senate will see that many of the pieces of legislation that we have passed or are about to pass are 70 or 80 percent by partisanly and nonpartisanly supported by the American people. Well, if you haven't heard, there is an election coming up um, in November of 2020, and then the American people can determine whether or not they like what's happening on one side of the chamber over the other. 
uh, with an election that will change or retain the numbers in the House and the Senate. Well, leaked internal Facebook documents show that the plans to sell access to user data by Facebook were discussed for years and received support from Facebook's most senior executives, including CEO Mark Zuckerberg and Chief Operating Officer Sheryl Sandborg. Um, a Facebook CEO oversaw these plans to consolidate the social network's power and control competitors by treating its user data as a bargaining chip while publicly proclaiming to be protecting that data, according to about 4,000 pages of leaked company documents, largely spanning 2011 to 2015 and obtained by NBC. Now, the documents, which include emails, web chats, presentations, spreadsheets and meeting summaries, show how Zuckerberg, along with his board and management team, found ways to tap Facebook's trove of user data, including information about friends, relationships, and photos, as leverage over companies in, it uh, partnered with. In some cases, Facebook would, re- would uh, reward favored companies by giving them access to the data of its users. In other cases, it would deny user data access to rival companies or apps. For example, Facebook gave Amazon extended access to user data because it was spending money on Facebook advertising and partnering with the social network uh, on the launch of its Fire smartphone. In another case, Facebook uh, discussed cutting off access to user data for a messaging app that had grown too popular and was viewed as a competitor, according to the documents. All the while, Facebook was formulating a strategy to publicly frame these moves as a way of protecting user privacy. Privacy communication between users is increasingly important, Zuckerberg said in a 2014 New York Times interview. Anything we can do that makes people feel more comfortable is really good. End quote. But the documents show that behind the scenes, in contrast with Facebook's public statements, the company came up with several ways to require third-party applications uh, to compensate Facebook for access to its users' data, including a direct payment, advertising spending, and data sharing arrangements. And while it's not unusual for businesses that are working together to share information about their customers, Facebook has access to sensitive data that many other companies simply don't possess. Facebook ultimately decided not to sell the data directly, but rather to dole it out to apps, app developers, who were considered um, personal friends of Zuckerberg or who spent money on Facebook and shared their own valuable data, the document showed. Facebook denied that it gave preferential treatment to developers or partners because of their ad spending or relationship with the executives. The company hasn't been accused of breaking the law, certainly breaking trust with the public. Meanwhile, Amazon has been inundated with tens of thousands of potentially fake five-star reviews, according to a new consumer report from the U.K., an investigation by which, um, question mark, found that the, that's the name of the company, by which, uh, found that of the hundreds of tech products for sale on the Jeff Bezos-led company, many have glowing reviews from unverified purchasers, which is a strong sign of being fake. The customer or consumer advocacy organization analyzed 14 different technology products, including cameras, wearables, headphones and smartphones, and discovered that some appear to be more heavily targeted by potentially fake reviews and unknown brands. It took just a couple of hours to uncover more than 10,000 reviews from unverified purchasers on just 24 pairs of headphones, an easy-to-find red flag that highlights the scale of Amazon's problem with fake reviews, according to a statement from which... And that's W-H-I-C-H, question mark. Well, the British watchdog also found a large number of cameras, fitness trackers, and smart watches from unknown brands with perfect five-star ratings and a chunk of unverified reviews. 
Amazon, along with Facebook, has been struggling to stem the tide of fake reviews for quite some time. The issue of fake reviews has also put the retail behemoth in the crosshairs with the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, There are ways that consumers can protect themselves from potentially fake reviews, according to which scrutinize brands you aren't familiar with more carefully, be suspicious of massive numbers of reviews, check for a lot of repetitive phrases in reviews and review titles, check seller profiles and filter to check for unverified versus verified reviews. Now, that all takes time and effort. And for a lot of people, they're not willing to do either put in the time or the effort. A spokesperson for Amazon provided a statement Uh, on Tuesday in response to all of this, saying that Amazon invests significant resources to protect the integrity of reviews. They're working on it, in other words. Well, Oregon's foster care system has failed to shield children from abuse, and they're sometimes forced to stay in refurbished jail cells, homeless shelters, according to a lawsuit that was filed on Tuesday. The uh, 77-page complaint filed in U.S. District Court Detailed stories of foster children being neglected or harmed while under Department of Health and Human Services care, uh, including a 16-year-old girl sent to a juvenile jail after she had previously tried to kill herself. The agency has weathered years of criticism over the way it treats children and has paid out tens of millions of dollars to settle previous complaints. The lawsuit also comes as the state agency fights off criticism from lawmakers over a recent news report that found a nine-year-old girl had been placed in an out-of-state residential facility in Montana. She wasn't the only one. Uh, She was injected with uh, Benadryl to control her behavior and went uh, without visits from a caseworker for six months. More than 80 children are housed outside Oregon. The big problem is that Oregon has failed to develop specialized placements or even enough placements for our kids in care. Marsha Lowry, executive director of A Better Childhood, one of the nonprofits behind the lawsuit, Oregon goes well beyond what even the national problems are. Well, in a statement, DHS Director um, Fairbors um, Pakshet said the agency is committed to finding children appropriate placement, especially those with intellectual and developmental disabilities. He said is uh, taking steps to address the problems identified in the lawsuit and is finalizing a long-term statewide plan to recruit more foster families. DHS also plans to reassess its use of -of out-of-state facilities. 31 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, I'll be joined in studio by Paul Pastor. He wrote an article for Christianity Today about the Bible Project. It's one of those online explainers using video. It's really quite remarkable how it's taken off and how it's driving people back to the Bible. We'll talk with him about that. In just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I had occasion recently to read an article in Christianity Today, as I often do, and it was written by Paul Pastor. The article was about how the Bible Project is using video to get people into Scripture again. And anything that gets people reading the Bible is always of interest to me. Uh, And so I invited Paul to join us today to talk a bit about that. Now, he is an author of several books, including uh, Palau, A Life on Fire. It's forthcoming from Zondervan, I believe, in June. So first of all, welcome and thanks for coming. Thanks, Georgine. It's great to be here. Well, this was a fascinating article. And, you know, I've been aware of the Bible Project. I've also been very... um, concerned about uh, a number of young friends uh, who aren't reading this. They're followers of Jesus. They, uh, they, they love him, but they're not Bible readers. And how do you encourage people to do that? 
And I had forgotten about the Bible project. Now I'm remembering again, and so I have a whole new project to to share with other people. Um, But first of all, describe the Bible project so listeners who aren't familiar with it um, can become familiar. Yeah, absolutely. The Bible project is an animation studio right here in Portland, Oregon. They've got a staff of uh, roughly about 30 people. And what they do is they publish, uh, well, multiple content about the Bible, but their main thing, their central thing is... Uh, animated explainer videos about the Bible. So these short three to maybe six or seven minute beautifully animated videos that walk readers through and and watchers through uh, themes of the Bible, books of the Bible, sections of the Bible, literary units of the Bible, big questions like what is the Bible? How did the Bible come from? So they're really putting out incredible PhD level uh, biblical research with something that even uh, a young child could appreciate and understand through video. And the goal isn't to entertain, although they're very well done and you'll find them riveting. Absolutely. The goal is to encourage people and inspire them to actually go back to the real thing and read for themselves. Yeah, their team has this recurring uh, phrase that they use about the Bible being a unified story that leads to Jesus. And their goal is to direct people to that, that unified story that points straight to Jesus. Now, this started, I believe, in 2014. Um, they mustered up enough funding to produce two of these videos. Um, where it is now is just a whole nother story. But it started very humble beginnings. But it grew out of a relationship that these two Multnomah students um, forged together. And the questions that they had about Scripture, I read a study just recently. I don't remember. I think it might have been Barna that indicated that young people, it isn't so much that they are, they are disinterested, disinterested in Scripture, but it's the silence, the inability to talk about the Bible, to have their questions seriously addressed that has led many young people away from serious uh, thought on the scriptures and a, a walk with God. That was sort of their experience. That was exactly the experience that they communicated to me as I wrote this article. John Collins in particular, who's just a brilliant fellow and one of those people who just asks the right questions. You know how fun it is to be in the same room with, with somebody like that. He grew up in a, a Christian household where he felt like there were all of these questions about the Bible that were dangerous to ask or that he couldn't ask. And it was this very subtle thing. Nobody ever told him that topic is off limits or you can't ask that. But all the same, he felt that he couldn't ask certain questions of how did the Bible come to us? How did people pass it along throughout the centuries? How do I know that God's Spirit is speaking in these pages? Uh, Just all these different questions that uh, many of us honestly have asked in Mm -hmm. our hearts uh, and ought to be able to talk about. And so uh, in his connection with Tim Mackey, uh, they found this beautiful space of being able to ask those questions that eventually grew into this incredible project about yeah. the Bible. And there's there's some f- uh, real freedom in being able to express. I mean, God is not intimidated by a question we might have about this portion of Scripture. He, he's not surprised by it. It doesn't come, you know, he's not scratching his head. Oh, dear, this never occurred to me. And yet I think there's a certain level of insecurity. I don't want to oversimplify it, but there might be a certain level of insecurity within the body of Christ. If I don't have the answer, let's just not address the question. So we we tend to, especially with young people, um, we fear we don't have an answer. And so we don't invite that kind of questioning that's genuine. They're good questions and ought to be addressed and can be answered. I think insecurity is the perfect word. Another word that might be good is fragility. We're really fragile about this. And I think it comes down, just like you just identified, to the sense of fear. What if somebody asks a question I can't answer? Uh, I've put all of these hopes on this on this book as uh, God's own word to me. What if my own questions get too big for me to handle? What if my doubt grows to a place where I can't 
understand anymore what I'm trying to believe here. And so that sense of fear and that sense of insecurity, I think, is a really dangerous place for us as Christians to operate out of. Uh, There has to be space for honest questions, even if they feel dangerous, and we have to trust uh, that the Bible can handle that and that the God that, you know, we believe is speaking to us through the Bible is is bigger yet than any of those questions. One of the things I like about, and there are many things that I like about the Bible Project, is the creativity that goes into mm. um, addressing some of these questions and creating a space in which questions are welcome and answers are made simple and clear. You can't simplify everything, but you can certainly make things clearer uh, to, to help people understand, okay, this is a legitimate question. This is where I can go to find answers. Mm. And I think that's part of the beauty of a visual medium like video. You're able to do things in video that uh, reinforce a theme, perhaps, or a given concept with color, with shape, with movement, in a way that a very didactic teaching from a pulpit, say, would actually really struggle to do. You can only do so much uh, when you're just telling, but if you show you can bring to life many of these stories or themes of the Bible that are really visual. Like the literature of the Bible is profoundly visual. It's symbolic. It's bright. It's uh, this incredibly rich literature. And video actually communicates that in some ways much better than even teaching from a pulpit occasionally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, if, uh, again, let's paint a picture of what the Bible Project does. It certainly will take a portion of Scripture, a book of the Bible, a theme, and illustrate it in this uh, very approachable video, but they're doing other things as well. Can you paint a picture for us, Hmm. for those in particular who haven't been exposed to it? Yeah. A broad sweeping overview, I would say that they're working to change the paradigm we have, the questions we ask about the Bible. They're doing that from a place of really deep faithfulness. Uh, There's no question in my mind about that. Uh, But they are taking into account um, all of these, especially recent... um, and really fascinating parts of the story of how the Bible came to us. Archaeology and text criticism, which for a long time have been dismissed by by certain segments of Christianity as being dangerous, as asking dangerous questions, uh, they actually really embrace those and see those as part of how the Holy Spirit has worked throughout the centuries to steward God's Word for His people. And so there's this sense of you know, they're asking these questions that highlight the literary beauty of the Bible. It's uh, Bible is literature on steroids. It's, I love it. But then at the same time, it's undergirded by all of this research that's taking into account um, new developments in what we know about how these manuscripts came to us throughout history, how people have stewarded them and saved them and given them to each other. So um, the broad picture that that the Bible Project paints is of the Bible as this unified story that leads to Jesus, but also as this rich and textured literary work that can speak directly to where we are and where we live today. Mm. One of the things that I um, noticed is that in the journey of Tim Mackey and John Collins, uh, from the questions that they had when they asked those questions, when they searched the scripture for the answers and found them, it created in them a, a profound faith that was richer and deeper and more profound. And they pass that along in these videos as well, because it welcomes people who do have questions and addresses them seriously as if they are legitimate questions worth asking and worthy of an answer. Yeah, they've had to push past the easy answers. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, especially, you know, we mentioned earlier on uh, the rising rates of what experts might call biblical illiteracy mm-hmm. in our culture, and how especially among younger generations, there's a sense that um, 
people are disengaging from the Bible. And one of the interesting things about the Bible Project's uh, user base, the people who support them because they're crowdfunded, uh, thousands of people give just little amounts of money to make these videos. Uh, one of the fascinating things is that their average viewer is between, if I remember correctly, about 18 and 25 and male. Mm-hmm. So this very demographic that so many uh, people are saying, we're losing, we're yeah, losing, yeah. is actually paying, giving, donating to have these explainers about the Bible given to them. So it undermines this narrative that, uh, you know, this generation is disinterested. It's just saying maybe we've been asking the wrong questions and maybe we've been presenting it in the wrong way. And maybe something like this, a very visual medium, a very rich and dense medium that's actually very smart, even though it's so mm-hmm. simple. Maybe that's what's going to connect. Well, with in fact, people today. It's, it's more challenging to do what they do than it would be to be more complex. I mean, to take a, a concept that is challenging and complex and to, to make it simple and easy to comprehend is a very challenging thing to do, and they do it very well. Absolutely. To talk about the book of Job in 50 minutes and to talk about it in five minutes are two very different things, and I guarantee you five minutes is harder. Yeah, absolutely. And to whet the appetite. So I've got to read that book again. Exactly. I need to read it from start to finish because this is fascinating, and it's relevant, and it's meaningful, and I understand why. Uh, why it's in the scriptures. It's it's just means a lot. Now, you mentioned in 2014 when they founded the project, it was crowdfunded and still relies on that. But in 2015, Francis Chan called hmm. and he was looking to um, expand his effectiveness into other areas as well. Can you talk a little bit about that um, hmm. aspect of how the project expanded? Yeah. What Tim and John communicated to me as I was writing the article for Christian Today was that Francis Chan was an early supporter who was very passionate about the possibilities that this medium had for pastoral training. So Francis Chan, as many uh, people know, has uh, really branched off to form a small network of house churches at this point, and he cares very deeply about having uh, the leaders of those get essentially free uh, Bible training, like very high quality but but free, like he's looking forward to the realities of the coming generation and church and uh, and seeing that we need that. And so the Bible Project spoke uh, to that need for him, and he was an early supporter who helped uh, essentially get the entire Bible uh, in a very simple fashion animated within the space of about a year in their uh, Read Scripture series. Yeah, just uh, just amazing. Now, we need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with Paul Pastor. About 46 minutes after 4 o'clock, we're talking about the Bible Project. And if you go to the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, you can get the uh, link to uh, that page and start the adventure. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Paul Pastor. He is an author of several books, including Palau, A Life on Fire, forthcoming from Zondervan. That'll be out in June, and I'd love to have you back to talk about that. Oh, I can't wait. Uh, when the book is out. We're talking about the Bible Project. The YouTube videos have, uh, have gotten about 120,000 views per day, and that number is rising steadily. Uh, It's uh, really quite amazing. In fact, you point out in your article, a conservative estimate, someone starts a Bible project video every three quarters of a second. Uh, And that's uh, really remarkable. Uh, They're currently um, uh, translating into Spanish, German, Urdu, Hindi, uh, Arabic, um, 
active projects. Uh, their Spanish channel alone has over 140,000 subscribers, 105 videos. Uh, UVision is also um, kind of picked it up. You can access it through UVision, and that has been very effective in spreading the resource. It really has. Yeah, UVision, which is one of the biggest Bible apps um, out there. I think the biggest, mm-hmm. although. I think so. I think, I think so. Uh, yeah, last year alone, um, the Bible Project's uh, Director of Partnerships, Ken Weigel, told me 2.5 million days, days of devotionals uh, were completed associated with their content. That's like nearly 7,000 years if you put yeah. all those days together. So it's really quite incredible to think about the scope and the reach that this animation, that this animation studio has globally. It's, it really is remarkable. One of the things you did in the, um, the article and one of the questions that is repeatedly asked is, um, uh, are the, the videos accurate? Can, can, are they, um, did they show fidelity to Scripture? And you spoke to several theologians about that very question. Yeah, and the resounding answer is absolutely. Of course, it, it always matters who you ask to get that kind of question of interpretation. But without a question, um, I'm acquainted with Tim Mackey personally, and he is one of the most rigorous and brilliant biblical minds uh, I've ever met in my life. Uh, promise you nobody paid me to say that. Uh, so yeah, the, the depth of scholarship that's present in their videos is, is really profound. The amount of research that goes in, the amount of care that goes into every script has impressed me very deeply as I produced this article and have gotten to watch from the fringes mm-hmm. how they do things. And yeah, if, if people have any questions about, you know, is this faithful to an Orthodox Christian message? The resounding answer is absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You say the number one often uh, repeated comment is, I had no idea the Bible was so, and uh, Mackie fills in the blank with unified, coherent, beautiful, Mm. that people are amazed Mm. to learn something about the Bible they did not know, Mm. not just in terms of a particular book or a section of scripture, but the Bible as a whole, Mm. and they see the beauty and the relevance of it in ways they hadn't before. It's so true. One of the things I appreciate about the project is that they never oversimplify what scripture is. They do make it simple, but they never oversimplify it. They will be the first to say, this is the tightly crafted literature of a culture that's really pretty foreign to us. It's holy literature. It's very dense. There's a lot to unpack here, a lot to see here. There's layer after layer, dimension after dimension that's put in there intentionally by its authors. And yet, it all points back to, I'll use the phrase again, that they do, the unified story that leads to Jesus. And so I appreciate that simple explanation of a book that many people don't even know where to start, mm-hmm. right? Do you start in Genesis or do you start in John? Do you, uh, you know, what do you do when you hit Ezekiel? What do you do when you hit Leviticus or Revelation? And they help give context, this huge literary context to the whole story of the Bible and all the literature of the Bible without ever dumbing it down and without ever making it more simple than it actually is. And that honesty, I think, speaks, especially to emerging generations Mm -hmm. who are asking those hard questions and don't want to be satisfied by a simple answer. Yeah, and I appreciate you're making that distinction because I'm making a point that they they simplify it so you can grasp it, but you're right. They don't dumb it down, and it's true to the story and the, mm. the meaning of the story. So I, I do appreciate that distinction. Um, they've been producing quite a bit, <laughs> to put it mildly. Mm. Is there an end in sight, and what is the end game? I know that you make the point that they didn't want to uh, make this a, a, a project that would live forever. There mm. is... Uh, a, a, conclusion at some point. I asked them that question and uh, 
what they both said was essentially every project comes to an end. We're not interested in building a legacy institution. Uh, really, they foresee at some point they're going to be done making videos, but they have about 100 more uh, that they plan to release over roughly the next five years. So there's, there, is, there does seem to be uh, an end for the project at some point. We are a ways away from that. Um, but I appreciate that uh, there doesn't seem to be this grasping quality to their work. They're really out to change the questions and the paradigms we have about reading the Bible without undermining its place in our lives. And uh, when that work is done, I get the sense from both of them that they're willing to close the project, at least in its current incarnation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that um, Mackey has a classroom initiative that he's starting here in the Portland area. Mm, that's right. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I don't know that much about it. I know it's relatively small. It's a cohort-based thing of, I believe, about 10 people per. Uh, I had the opportunity to have lunch with him recently, and he was just aglow with, uh, with excitement. He's really a teacher at heart. And uh, I think he is longing to have those types of classroom conversations and high-level biblical and theological dialogue that really speak to his scholar's heart. And so this idea of bridging the project out into the classroom seems really natural. And Portland, uh, certainly as uh, Mackie and Collins' hometown, uh, but also as a place where there are many people asking these types of questions about the Bible, feels like a really natural home for that mm-hmm. type of classroom experience. Mm-hmm. You quote John Collins as saying, I've gone from being a post-Bible Christian to someone who finds incredible meaning in the scriptures. And mm-hmm. I think that defines what the Bible project is all about and how people are being enriched by it and being um, perhaps introduced to the Bible or reintroduced to the Bible for the first time, mm. and finding um, meaning, beauty, and a unified story there. I couldn't have said it better. That idea that the Bible uh, can be given back to people who are asking hard questions really seems like it's at the heart of this project, really at the heart of this work. And that's something that I have a lot of hope will uh, turn around what many see as a disturbing trend of biblical illiteracy and actually make the future a bright one for Bible engagement. Mm. Well, it, again, it's such an impressive project. Uh, I put a link to the Bible Project on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. You can check that out yourself. Uh, yourself. version also has uh, access to it, but it's a great way to introduce particularly young people, but not exclusively uh, young people to the Bible. And certainly all of us who perhaps have questions that have never been addressed Um, This is a great place, a great space to check that out. Now, we want to have you back to talk about the Palau book that you um, have written, A Life uh, on Fire. It's coming out in June. Um, Just one comment on writing with and collaborating with Luis Palau. Oh, it was one of the great honors of my life already. I can't wait for the book to come out. It's going to be a very intimate, very personal view of a really extraordinary man. And I think it's going to be really meaningful for readers as they are questioning Um, What's my gift for the world? Mm -hmm. How can I release my life, set it on fire in a good way for Jesus like Luis has done? So I just can't wait to share the hard work we've been doing with all of you. Well, I hope you'll come and share it with us as well. I would love to. Let's do it. forward to it. All right. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the five o'clock hour of the Georgine Rice Show, our second hour. We're glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering. In this hour, we're going to talk with Steve Cleary. He's the co-producer of the CGI animated movie. It's John Bunyan's epic masterpiece, Pilgrim's Progress. It's coming to Portland theaters, but only for two days. That's Thursday and Saturday of this week, the 18th and the 20th. And by the way, if you're interested in more information and to purchase tickets uh, to find out when the um, shows are 
uh, the times and locations. You can go to Pilgrims, no punctuation, pilgrims.movie for more information. So check that out. But he'll be joining us uh, in our uh, at the bottom of the hour. Steve Cleary, the co-producer, I believe, uh, with his wife of the CGI animated movie Pilgrim's Progress. Well, these are what some of the um, headlines are telling us, that it was a miracle that most of the interior of uh, Notre Dame remained intact. There were uh, there was only one injury. A firefighter apparently was um, sadly seriously injured. The stained glass windows survived. There's currently a criminal probe, but they're almost certain that this was the result of the reconstruction project they were on. The uh, president of France, Macron, has vowed to rebuild Notre Dame in five years. Um, there's dramatic firefighter footage of what they faced in trying to put out this massive inferno. Uh, and um, it could take decades, some are suggesting, to put this whole thing back together. Well, what I want to do is to try to put this into some perspective, first by looking at what actually happened, the physical structure and the destruction that took place. I was reading one article that pointed out that uh, Notre Dame's destruction was bound to happen after years of neglect, lack of upkeep. Uh, This is according to several um, experts. The blackened shell of the uh, monument survived nearly 900 years. The French, um, uh, through the French Revolution, much of French history, two world wars and so on. The the cathedral um, was immortalized, as you might recall, in Victor Hugo's 1831 novel, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Most of us know the movie, maybe not the novel, but it's worth reading. It was undergoing a massive $6.8 million renovation project when the blaze broke out. Now, we've learned that the construction workers were not on site when that happened. Now, this may have been something smoldering for quite some time, but when the flames um, erupted or when the smoke was detected, they were not on site. This was an effort to turn back the clock on centuries of neglect of the beloved monument. And it's not altogether surprising. The cost of maintaining a facility like that is staggering. But according to the president of the Scientific Council at the National Heritage Institute, the lack of real upkeep and daily attention to such a major building is the cause of this catastrophe. This is not about looking for people to blame, he says. The responsibility is collective because this is the most loved monument in the country. Well, they say it's not enough to have been, uh, uh, not enough rather, has been spent on maintenance at the revered building. And again, that's fairly common for these older structures that in today's dollars are immense. The cost is immense. Firefighters declared success uh, yesterday, uh, I should say early this morning, after battling the blaze for 12 hours to extinguish uh, what had started some 12 hours earlier, they, uh, the, the f- uh, fire claimed the spire, the roof. Um, it spared the bell towers and the purported crown of Christ. The cathedral's uh, twin bell towers remained visibly intact. In fact, there, was, there are bells there that the, the weight of which is um, posed a significant uh, problem in terms of trying to keep those towers up. But they uh, managed to survive. Uh, Another individual who oversees the construction work for the Gothic Cathedral in Cologne, Germany, I've been there, I've walked up the spire, said that it could take decades to repair the damage, despite the fact that Macron has said he'd like to see it done in five years. The 12th century church is home to an 18th century organ, relics, stained glass, other works of art, incalculable uh, value, um, a leading tourist attraction. Many of those uh, relics and artifacts were uh, preserved, which is, again, having seen the flames is just amazing. Repairing the cathedral, we're being told, including the 800-year-old wooden beams um, that uh, made up its roof, presents some significant challenges. The roof can't be rebuilt exactly as it was. Um, the trees on the territory 
that France occupies now of the size that were cut in the 13th century are simply not available. It, they'd have to use some new technology, which has been done um, over the years, over the 800 plus years that the uh, cathedral has stood. The 12th century church is home to relics, stained glass, other works of art. Um, its organ dates back to 17, uh, the 1730s, was constructed by well, you wouldn't know the person anyway, but that apparently survived as well. So it's quite remarkable uh, that much of the physical structure remains. Some of uh, what's being said, uh, they have yet to determine the cause, although they think they know. Um, Dennis Prager, in commenting on the uh, uh, the fire, says it is as if God himself wanted to warn us in the most unmistakable way that Western Christianity is burning and with it Western civilization. We'll hear more from him in a moment. Mark Hemingway uh, on t- uh, Twitter says this. Take comfort in the fact it's Holy Week. Christianity is premised on resurrection. And from the Wall Street Journal, they write one need only witness the throngs of visitors around Notre Dame, Notre Dame uh, each day from Africa, South America, Asia, alongside North Americans and Europeans to see how its cultural significance spread far beyond the Western civilization that created it. It has stood for nearly 900 years as a globally recognizable monument to the faith practiced within it. Uh, The iconic, uh, and this is from the Federalist, the iconic church upon which construction in Paris, France uh, took place began in 1163. Um, Is uh, aside from St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican, the most important architectural triumph of Catholicism's 2,000-year history. The loss of so much of it can be spoken of in the same breath as the first temple of Jerusalem or the Library of Alexandria. Well, I'd probably say the Library of Alexandria, the first temple in Jerusalem, maybe not so much. That was um, constructed by God himself using his agent Solomon and artisans at the time, so I wouldn't put it in that category. But USA Today says, all was not lost at Notre Dame. The religious statues that sat atop the cathedral were recently removed as part of the $6.8 million renovation of the towering spire that fell to the ground uh, in Monday's blaze. Some of the sacred artifacts housed at the cathedral are safe, too, according to uh, the mayor of Paris. Well, Kate McKenna says this, a landmark in Paris for over 800 years, having been built in the 13th century, a center of worship and political triumph, a symbol of France that survived two world wars. In fact, in 2017 alone, the French government recorded 887 attacks on Christian artifacts or churches in that country. Uh, These churches serve great purpose for the faithful, of course, but also as a reminder of France's heritage. The French are known for their stubbornness and patriotic pride. I hope they will be able to activate it to the fullest to rebuild, restore, and protect. Viva la France, she ends her article with. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but uh, we'll continue reflecting on some of what's being said about the fall of uh, Notre Dame uh, and the fact that it calls for it to be restored. Funds are already being uh, offered for that purpose. Uh, The president of uh, France has indicated he'd like to have it completed in five years, most who know anything about construction and uh, maintenance of that kind of facility recognize that it will take far longer, but at least there is a commitment being made. Now, the um, cathedral actually belongs to France, uh, but the Catholic Church had access to it uh, in perpetuity. So uh, the apparently the French government is going to take responsibility, I would suppose, in concert with the Catholic Church to see it restored, at least in some form. 
moving forward. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Steve Cleary, co-producer of the uh, uh, epic CGI animated movie, Pilgrim's Progress. We'll talk with him about that in our next segment. Well, Nate Jackson writes this. Monday of Holy Week was a particularly poignant time for Notre Dame Cathedral to burn. Fire destroyed the roof and the spire as well as much of the interior. It's difficult to see such magnificent Christian architecture go up in flames. Yet no lives were lost, even with the building full of worshipers, workers, and tourists. Again, one um, fireman was apparently seriously injured. Standing at the center of Paris since the foundation stone was laid in 1163, this monumental Gothic cathedral took more than 200 years to finish. And it was perhaps the crowning achievement of an age when Christians prioritized enduring beauty to reflect the eternal glory of the Creator. To be sure, there were also other motivations for such grand enterprises, and external beauty does not cover internal rot. But building a place of worship meant to last uh, for centuries is, sadly, a lost art. Then later he writes, yet far more important than the burning of Notre Dame is the metaphor it creates for Western Christianity. Once the center of Christendom, Europe has descended over the last two dec- two centuries rather, into a secular post-Christian and often anti-Christian malaise. Uh, Arguably, Europe was uh, always more culturally Christian than doctrinally Christian, but now instead of the church being the center of society, government is. Nominal Christians have exchanged the truth of Scripture for the lies of self-worship. They've rejected God's authority, substituting their own feelings. To most of the French, Notre Dame itself had become little more than a popular tourist attraction, and most of their mourning has nothing to do with losing a symbol of Christianity, but rather a cultural museum of national pride. Jesus himself might have called it a whitewashed tomb. The resulting vacuum in Europe is being filled by Islam, which aims to supplant Christianity and become the world's dominant religion. Europe is far down the path that America has begun to tread. But such Christianity hardly needs an external enemy when it's already committing suicide. Notre Dame, then, is not just one cathedral up in flames. It's all of Western Christianity. Still, there is always hope. Christians and Christianity itself never find perfection in themselves. In fact, that's the point. Fallen humanity needs a savior, and we celebrate his sacrifice and resurrection during this holy week. Indeed, that the, that, uh, the Notre Dame cross survived the fire may just remind us that hope, renewal, and redemption remain by God's grace. After all, Christ promised that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Again, Nate Jackson writing for the Patriot Post. And then um, Gracie Poza Christie, who is an M.D., uh, writes this. She actually serves on the um, an advisory board for the uh, the Catholic Association here in the United States. And she writes this. Notre Dame demonstrated incomparably the wild abandon with which medieval Christians lived ad majorum de gloriam for the greater glory of God. When we see it in flames, Catholics from one end of the world to another mourn not only the destruction of unrivaled artistry, but also the lesson of Notre Dame. Right there in the middle of aggressively secular France, uh, where secularity is the state religion, stood an ineffable beauty, a song of love to the creator, sung in stone, wood, and glass. The ideals and values that we hold dear today about man's inherent dignity, about equality based only on humanity, 
and not other attribute and um, no other attribute like race or origin where notes in that song and transform civilization for the better. As we drift away from our Christian understanding of the universe, its creator and our place and purpose in it, our culture drifts into utilitarianism and a man is valuable only so long as he produces more than he consumes. The vision of Notre Dame on fire is the uh, stark vision of the tragic result of our spiritual apathy. If we no longer are capable of building these marvels of faith in action, are we now even uh, to lose the blessing of their reminding presence? We have been sitting comfortably assured that all the good things we have gotten from the great cathedrals would always be ours. But watching Notre Dame uh, burn tells another story. We're losing the beauty, the truth, and the good. We have sold it all for a mess of pottage, taking something that only looks attractive in exchange for something immensely more valuable. The lightning-fast destruction of Notre Dame is emblematic of the slow de- deconstruction of our shared Christian values, but we have the ultimate consolation and hope. This is Holy Week, and we are preparing to relive the death and resurrection of Jesus. He told us, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was referring to his own triumph over death, of course, but we can also take his words in hope for the resurrection of Notre Dame and all she has stood for these many centuries. Again, Ms. Garza, she serves on the advisory board of the Catholic Church. And Dennis Prager, also taking on the uh, uh, the fire at Notre Dame, points out that this may be something of an omen. He writes, the symbolism of the burning Notre Dame Cathedral, the most renowned building in Western civilization, the iconic symbol of Western Christendom is hard to miss. It is as if God himself wanted to warn us in the most unmistakable way that Western Christianity is burning and with it, Western civilization. Every major Western and one major non-Western social and intellectual force has conspired to rid Europe and Christian of Christianity and the civilization it produced. Within the Western world, the French Enlightenment, the intellectual basis of the French Revolution and the modern West, sought to replace Christianity and religion in general with secularism rooted in reason. No God, no Bible or Ten Commandments is necessary for morality or meaning. Reason and science will replace them. The two final death blows to Christianity in Europe were the World Wars. World War I ended most Westerners' belief in the nation-state and the West. Christianity, already weakened by the Enlightenment, was further weakened by World War I. German Christians were killing millions of French and English Christians, and French and English Christians were killing millions of German Christians. So the argument and sentiment against Christianity went... Then World War II saw even more death on the Christian continent, as well as the failure of Catholic and Protestant churches in Nazi Germany to offer even minimal noncompliance with the Nazi Jew hatred. With the end of World War II, every internal Western intellectual doctrine was secular. God, the Bible, and religion were regarded as best as uh, innocuous nonsense, and at worst as innocuous nonsense. Meanwhile, Europeans... Uh, brought a non-European ideology into Europe, an ideology that for more than a thousand years sought to replace Christianity as the world's dominant religion. The Europeans, believing in nothing distinctly Christian or Western and believing in the moral and intellectual nonsense known as multiculturalism, a doctrine that asserts that all cultures are morally equivalent, saw nothing problematic in bringing millions of Muslims into Europe. They had no idea that most of these... um, wanted to replace Christianity with their religion. But since Christianity mattered little, what difference would it make? They had no idea because in their ignorance and arrogance, they assumed that because they were a secular multiculturalists, everybody else was too and would be once they lived in Europe. They were wrong, of course. 
And as a result, the two dominant forces in Europe, secular leftism and Islamism, sought to end Christianity and the West. This is not producing a pretty picture. Generally speaking, Islam has not been nearly as kind, tolerant, open, medically or scientifically innovative or intellectually curious as Western civilization. Even without tens of millions of Muslims, post-Christian Europe has not produced a pretty picture either. This was predicated in 1834, 100, 100 years before Hitler's rise, by the great German poet Heinrich Hein, a secular Jew who later converted to Protestantism, the ticket of admission into European culture. Christianity, and that is its greatest merit, has somewhat mitigated that brutal German love of war, but it could not destroy it. Should that subduing um, talisman, the cross, be shattered, the frenzied madness of the ancient warriors, that insane berserk rage of which the Nordic bards have spoken and sung so often— This uh, talisman, the cross, is fragile, and the day will come when it will collapse miserably. Then a play will be performed in Germany, which will make the French Revolution look like an innocent um, idol. Again, that's a quote from German poet Heinrich Hein. European Christians persecuted European Jews, often brutally, but it took a post-Christian ideology, secular Nazism, to produce Auschwitz, just as it took post-Christian communism to produce the Gulag, the Chinese Cultural Revolution, and the Ukrainian and Cambodian genocides. Moreover, Nazism and communism aside, the left's belief that secular reason can replace God and the Bible turns out to be completely wrong. The alleged citadels of secular reason, the universities, are the most ir- uh, irrational and morally confused institutions in the West. I don't know if a worker's uh, accident or a radical Muslim set the fire in Notre Dame, Notre Dame Cathedral. Uh, we do know, or at least we have a pretty strong suspicion that it was neither. In terms of what the fire represented, it, represented rather, it doesn't much matter. What matters is the omen. Europe is burning just as Notre Dame was. Well, it is a sobering time. We are on the Tuesday of Holy Week, and when we uh, end the program, we're going to take a look at the events that took place on that day, uh, back at the at the time when Jesus was anticipating his crucifixion. It was the day, as Luke 19.47 tells us, that he was teaching daily in the temple, and that Tuesday of his, uh, uh, his passion, it was no different. He was in the temple teaching. We'll talk more about that. Also coming up, we're going to talk with Steve Cleary. He's the co-producer of the CGI animated movie, John Bunyan's epic masterpiece, Pilgrim's Progress. It's only going to be in theaters for two days. In fact, I'm going to ask him a question about that. Uh, why only two days? And oftentimes we see these kinds of inspirational films only available on a very short run. We'll find out why that is the case and why we need to support them. Uh, by the way, for Times and uh, Theaters, you can go to pilgrims.movie for more information. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Steve Cleary, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, for the first time in history, John Bunyan's epic masterpiece, The Pilgrim's Progress, is coming to theaters. It's based on one of the best-selling books of all time. It's a story that can, well, help children and grandchildren find the courage to stay well on the straight path in a culture that often stands against them. It's the tale of Christian, his heavy burden, his journey along the narrow way from the city of destruction to the, the celestial city, all while the ultimate enemy tries everything in his power to distract him. Most of us have read it, but this is a new version for a new generation. Joining us to talk about that is uh, the co-producer of the film, Steve Cleary. Thank you so much for joining us today, and congratulations. 
Uh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here, Georgine. Well, we're happy to have you here as well. The Pilgrim's Progress is coming to theaters for two days only. Let me first ask you, why such a short run? Uh, it's it's a limited theatrical release with Fathom, and for independent filmmakers, it's a way to to be on the big screen without taking the big financial risk or having a studio for a full theatrical release. So we would have honestly liked to have had more uh, time because many theaters are starting to sell out. But unfortunately, when we booked it, you know, it was just a limited two-show release. Well, let me just tell you how grateful I am for that limited release. I've uh, watched the trailer several times, and I guess my, my disappointment is I know I'm going to want to watch it more than once, so I'm going to have to keep my eyes and ears open for future opportunities. Well, my generation is very familiar with The Pilgrim's Progress. It's John Bunyan's masterpiece, as I mentioned a moment ago. But for listeners who are perhaps younger and have not had the privilege of reading the book, now have the opportunity to watch the movie. Give us the the basic storyline and why you think it's important that this old story be retold in the 21st century. Well, I definitely think the story is relevant today, Mm -hmm. and because it's really the story of the Christian, the the journey that we take as Christians. So it starts out with a pilgrim named Christian who comes upon a book which represents the Bible, and the more he reads the book, the more burden grows on his back, which represents sin. And so he sets out to to get rid of this burden. It's weighing him down. And, of course, the only way he can do that is through Jesus Christ, is through the cross. And when his burden is finally released, he feels like his journey is over. But that's actually just the halfway point in the movie. And then he goes on the journey with a helmet and a shield and a sword And now he has to battle the enemy. He has to face the trials. He has to face the temptations. And so his journey really begins. And I think that's the message for today. I think many people think when they become a Christian, that's, you know, that's kind of the end. Hey, I'm a Christian now. Everything's great. So we're saying, and John Bunyan was saying, no, when you become a Christian, it's the beginning. And that journey can be difficult at times. And that journey is exciting. And that journey is important because we're all on a path, and every path leads to a destination. So this story is just so relevant, and you're right. Uh, children today are not that familiar with the story. We want to keep it alive. I think in a small way, by releasing the movie, we are keeping the story alive for, for the next generation. Absolutely. We don't want to let the story go. It is the best presentation of the Christian journey I, I have ever read. Yeah, it always leaves a, a significant impression when it's read. You are producing or have produced a CGI animated version of the story. And one thing I've heard from critics is it actually enhances the story in ways that sometimes can be difficult when reading it. Uh, talk a little bit about the animation and the challenge of telling this profound story in such a way. You know, it was it was difficult, in, but really two ways. One is we needed to have the script, make sure we capture the essence of the allegory. Like you said in the opening, it's from the city of destruction to the celestial city to, you know, the prize, the end, eternity. And it's so we were able to take highlights from many different characters in the book, and we represent those characters. So legality is there, worldly wise men is there, Apollyon's there. And all the main characters of the Pilgrim's Progress in the book are in the movie. And then the harder thing was to do an independent CGI animation. And to give you a reference, a Hollywood studio will spend an average of $80 million to produce a CGI animation. 
Pixar is way beyond that. Um, and we had just pennies. We had like two to 3% of an average budget to work with. So the challenge was to, to make it creative enough to be worthy of displaying on a big screen. And I think the team did an amazing job considering the funds they had to work with and then capturing the story. But the initial feedback we've been getting from uh, pre-screenings is, and especially as fans of the book, we knew they'd be our hardest critics. Mm-hmm. They're giving it they're giving it two thumbs up. So we're we're real proud of the script and the final production. I'm sure Rotten Tomatoes might beat us up with a budget CGI animation, but fans of the book are telling us, you did it. You captured the book, and that was extremely important to us. Yeah, and I'm hearing that from others as well. Uh, there was a movie version that came out in 1978. It was not very well done. And contrasting what you have produced, I'm hearing that this is just phenomenal. For one thing, your voice actors, you got a strong uh, group of voice actors led by the narrator, John Reese davies uh, who people might be familiar with as Gimli from The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, he was amazing to work with. He just sent me an email yesterday congratulating me and you know, it's such a long process. It seems like a long time ago we met with him in New Zealand and he spent some time with us. But if you can imagine this unknown filmmaker, you know, this unannounced film saying, hey, for a small amount of money, can you play one of our lead characters? And, you know, we just he just has a heart for the gospel and he has mm. a heart for for this story. He knew this story well and he signed on to it. And, you know, other Hollywood actors turned us down, but we reached out. Uh, to a certain group of people. John stepped up, did an amazing job. Uh, I'm just so thankful that he was able to, you know, uh, work within our budget. And he just gave, he gave 110%. Uh, So if you see it at the theater, he plays Evangelist, which the movie you mentioned in 1979, that was Liam Neeson playing Evangelist. Another, he wasn't known then, but he became obviously very well known. And we were able to... um, we were able to cast John uh, to play that role. And it was just, it was an honor and he did an amazing job. I understand that Irish hymn writer, Kristen Getty is also uh, has played a role in this. What role is she playing as a a character or did she write music for the production? We use her music in the production, but she actually plays uh, interpreter and which represents the Holy spirit in the book. Now in the book, the Holy spirit is a male character and Bunyan's work is is the first part of the book. It's, it's mostly male characters, and we wanted to add a little bit more female influence. So we picked the interpreter. We thought it was a good character to use female. She played that role. And for those who go to the theater, she's actually opening up our film. She gives a short presentation and shares this great message about imagination and and how we use our imaginations to in the arts to understand and worship God. And she's doing the special presentation that just for these two events, people are going to be able to see. And and her and Keith have been extremely supportive uh, through this entire process. Um, And yeah, she's been great to work with her. She's been asked to do a lot of voices from much bigger films than mine. And she's turned many of them down, and she said yes to ours. We're extremely oh, thankful. That's amazing. Well, as we mentioned earlier, The Pilgrim's Progress, the CGI animated version of uh, John Bunyan's story, is only going to be in theaters two days. That's coming up Thursday the 18th and Saturday the 20th. Now, this is Holy Week. This is a great opportunity as we're all reflecting on the events leading up to the death and crucifixion 
and ultimately the resurrection of Christ. Uh, this is a great way to keep our minds focused on important elements of uh, this Holy Week. Again, the 18th and the 20th, that's Thursday and Saturday of this week. You can go online, check your movie listings, uh, because there will be opportunities, but um, they're limited. So I would encourage you to buy your tickets early because they might just uh, <laughs> dissipate before you before you know it. Well, first of all, let me just say once again, congratulations on bringing an old story to life. I think you're absolutely right. It's a great story that's worth repeating. And I think for a new generation of moviegoers that I think will ultimately want to go back and read the uh, the original um, uh, book are going to find this uh, an encouraging, challenging um, opportunity to reflect on the Christian life. Amen. And that, you know, that's our goal, too, is that people go back and people go back and read the book. Um, if you want to check theaters, we do have a website set up where you can check theater listings. It's at pilgrims.movie, uh, node.com, just simply pilgrims.movie. You can type in your zip code, uh, see what theaters are there. About We're in about 750 theaters. Hopefully it's something close by. Some, Most of them run Thursday and Saturday. Some have picked just to run Thursday. And I did. some have opened up Saturday after. Oh, wonderful. I did check. And in this area, we have both Thursday and Saturday. So folks can check that out. Again, pilgrim.movie is the best place to find where the movie's showing here. Steve Cleary, thank you so much, not only for uh, taking the time to talk with us here today, but for producing a great story and doing a great job. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye. Again, Steve Cleary, co-producer, I believe, along with his wife, of the CGI animated movie John Bunyan's epic masterpiece, The Pilgrim's Progress, in theaters this Thursday, this Saturday. Check out theaters at pilgrims.movie. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, you're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, today is uh, Tuesday of Holy Week, and Luke 19.47 tells us this, and he was teaching daily in the temple. Well, there was room in the temple courtyard, well, now, with the money tables gone, the baskets carted off, the great court was quiet, it was open, and into that vacated place the people poured to hear him. Jesus was going to speak. Now, that's how it is in the Tuesday of our lives as well. When his house cleaning clears away the clutter and he opens up space in our schedules, in our hearts, then we hunger to fill that receptive space with knowledge of him. Well, this third day of Holy Week began with Palm uh, Sunday. Yesterday, if he cleared the temple of money changers in this third day of Holy Week, it corresponds to the time in our lives when we drive 200 miles to, uh, to hear an inspired speaker, for example, when we go without lunch to buy the latest teaching tape or spend our week's vacation at a church retreat because we are so hungry to hear. What teaching it was there in the temple. Jesus saw a widow drop a penny into the treasury. He taught about sacrificial giving. He was shown a coin with Tiberius's profile and taught about priorities. But Tuesday is not yet Easter Sunday. That is the risk on this part of our walk that we'll be content with, well, head knowledge and fail to complete the journey. All of us know people who stop at Tuesday. They attend three Bible studies. They run from conference to conference and never encounter the risen Christ. We know a great deal about him, but don't know him. Well, Tuesday can be a dangerous day. I don't know if you're anything like me, but I love to study just for the sake of study. The sight of a fresh notebook makes my pulse speed. I can, well, take beautifully outlined notes of a lecture without relating a word that the speaker has to say to my own life. There must have been many like me who heard Jesus teach that first Holy Week. There were crowds in the temple, only a handful at the empty tomb. 
But Jesus won't let us stop short of Easter, not forever. The time comes to close the books, to leave the lecture hall, to take the road to Calvary and beyond. And during Holy Week, that is precisely what we do. We reflect on the events of the historic character, the life of Jesus Christ, whose faithfulness led uh, not only to Holy Tuesday, but to Resurrection Sunday. That required Good Friday when his life was taken from him, um, or rather when he laid his life down. So as we reflect on uh, these events during Holy Week, we don't just stop on Tuesday where Jesus is teaching in the temple. We don't just stop on Monday where we're looking uh, to see him cleanse the temple of the money changers. We don't stop at Palm Sunday where for one rare moment, the crowd said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But we continue on the very difficult and painful journey to the crucifixion of Christ. It is bloody, it's painful, it's unmerciful, it's unjust, and yet it's through all of that, the sacrifice required, that we can now cry out, Abba, Father. So today we remember that he taught in the temple, but that wasn't the end of the story. Climbed up the hill as well. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Dean and Sarah. He is the author of The Unsaved Christian. Well, what could that be? Is it possible that there are some among us who are cultural Christians without uh, ever having actually known Christ? Uh, that there are those who attend church regularly that uh, that um, uh, go to, from one conference to another, as the devotion suggested, never encountering the risen Lord. We're going to talk about the unsaved Christian reaching cultural Christianity with the gospel with Dean and Sarah. And then on uh, Thursday, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Scott Gilchrist, the pastor of the Southwest Bible Church. He's also the Bible teacher at the Downtown Bible Class and the host of the program by the same name heard here on KPDQ. We're going to talk about the uh, uh, Maundy Thursday and the events surrounding uh, the death and resurrection of Christ. I'm so looking forward to uh, talking with Pastor Scott. We're also going to talk with John uh, Gogger, who is the author of Kids Say the Wisest Things, 26 Lessons You Didn't Know Your Children Could Teach You. So we'll talk with uh, both men on Thursday. And then our employer here, Salem Media, was gracious enough to give us Good Friday off so that we could uh, worship and celebrate and reflect and all of those things, along with uh, millions of people all across the globe. So I'm looking forward to spending time uh, with uh, with family on uh, let's see, it was Sunday, on Palm Sunday. My mother doesn't hear well. She's not steady on her feet, so she doesn't attend church regularly. And it it saddens me because my mother was a musician, is a musician. She um, she loves to worship. She loves uh, good Bible teaching. She spends a lot of her time studying the scriptures. And at 88, having walked with Jesus since her early 20s, um, when I go downstairs and I go down and spend some time with her every night, to make sure, you know, how are you doing? Did you eat dinner? What, how was your day been? Who have you spoken to? She always lights up when she starts talking about God's word and what a delight it is to have read something so many times over the years, but see uh, some fresh revelation of what God is saying, a, a deeper understanding of what his uh, scriptures are teaching. And she's she's thrilled about that. So I came down the stairs uh, on Sunday uh, morning and I was reading uh, from the Gospel of Mark and, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I'd gone into the backyard and I found some palm fronds and came down the stairs and we had a little worship service uh, so that she could also rejoice um, during this Holy Week and do so in fellowship. So I hope you're taking uh, the time and the opportunity uh, to do that. But I have so enjoyed spending time with my mom and reflecting on these events that she has studied and worshipped and lived through and reflected on and observed 
for decades. Again, she came to faith in Christ in her early 20s. She's 88 and still loves God's word. She still lights up um, when she talks about it. She still moved and taught and learns when she reads it um, because she's devoted to following Christ. And so anyway, we're looking forward to uh, spending some time in worship on Friday. Uh, and hope you will do the same. I uh, want to remind you that the Good Friday Breakfast at the Oregon Convention Center, sponsored by the YMCA, uh, is at 7 o'clock a.m. at the Convention Center. You can go to the YMCA's website for more information. I'm not sure if there are still uh, seats available. My guess is there are. Um, but uh, the speaker this year is just an incredible uh, man whose story of being thoroughly injured uh, in a fire 100% of his body having been burned as a nine-year-old boy, a man of faith who has known the grace and mercy and love of God. So that's coming up 7 o'clock a.m. this Friday at the Oregon Convention Center. Check out the YMCA's website for more information. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.